Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. Diane, I before we get into our episode today, this is our continuation of our last episode, but I noticed on, I think I was looking at Facebook first and then later Instagram, that you were part of a restoration class yes, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Yes, yesterday, yesterday evening, we did some um, resetting of some of the smaller flat headstones at Fairview Cemetery, which is on the west side of Colorado Springs. I'm definitely a little bit sore today because <laughs> you literally had to pry these six inch thick stones up to, you know, put the sand and stuff in them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's these little projects like that, that they take so long, but it's nice seeing the stones at least flush with the ground. So they're not getting, you know, the grass and stuff growing right. over them. Cause more times than not, at least the ones we did last night were children. Oh, I don't yeah. know if I read that. I didn't, I was so intrigued by the pictures. I kept looking at the pictures and how you guys were doing the whole thing and digging them up and resurfacing underneath them and everything. So I wasn't paying strict attention to who is buried there, but I was kind of interested in that process and it, but it looked like you guys had a pretty decent turnout too. Yeah. We had um, about eight people. That's nice. Yeah. So there was like two of us prying them up and then the other <laughs> ones would come in and clean or reset them and then clean them. So nice. It looked really good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you got to do that. And um, I'm glad there were pictures to show that you yeah. did that. So yeah, that was kind of exciting to see. So, um, and one of our listeners happens to be in that class. So, and I know she talked to you for a little bit. She yes. Said yes, she cause, did. Cause I read, I'm sitting there staring at her. It's like, I recognize you. <laughs> and then I went up to her and I, I go, what is your name? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, you've talked to Jenny. And she's like, yeah. So yeah, it was really nice to put faces Mm -hmm. well, yeah, because we follow her on Instagram, too, because she does a lot of the Southern Colorado cemeteries mm -hmm. and photographs them and is sharing them on Instagram all the time. And we've talked about having her actually on the show as a guest um, to specifically talk about the Canyon City Cemetery, which I know mm -hmm. is near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's photographed it also. So at some point we will work with her to get that set up. We just haven't because we've had a lot of other guests and right. a lot of other stuff. And it's been kind of crazy. And she's been busy too. So yes. yeah, it was, it was nice to actually meet, to meet these people I've been talking to on Facebook. So yeah, I know. Cool. I love when that happens. Yeah. Well, today's episode, we are going to pick up where we left off last week with the mining explosions that occurred at the Union Pacific Coal Company's number one mine in Hannah, Wyoming. Last week, we talked about the tragic deaths of 169 men who were killed in a major explosion on June 30th, 1903. This week, we are going to discuss the double explosion that happened in 1908 and caused the deaths of 59 men. If you are wanting more information on the towns of Hannah and Carbon and their two cemeteries, please make sure you go back and listen to episode 38, where we go through some of that basic history. It seems that the conditions in the mine that led to the explosion actually began eight days before the tragedy on March 20th, 1908. On that day, two miners were working near entry number 10. They fired a shot at about 11 p.m., which set fire to the coal. They tried to secure water with which to extinguish the flames, but were unable to do so as the pipeline was out of order. 
They then attempted to extinguish the flame by spreading the burning coal over the floor of the entry. They believed they had the fire out and later started out of the mine. On their way out along the entry, they met fire boss John Evans and informed him of what had happened. Evans investigated and later told the men that the fire was out. However, the next evening it was discovered that there was still fire in that same entry. This was reported to the mine foreman. When the foreman made his way back into the mine to check on it, it was found that the fire had become much larger and was spreading quickly. It was determined that entry number 10 was to be completely walled off in order to prevent the fire from spreading further throughout the mine. Because of the time it was taking to secure the area of the mine, there were not many men who worked on Tuesday the 24th or Thursday the 26th of that week. On Saturday, March 28, 1908, Superintendent Briggs decided that it was time to really tackle that fire inside the mine. He, along with 17 other men, proceeded to attack the fire smoldering behind the stopping in the number 10 entry. Included in this group of 17 men were also foremans for the other mines, numbers 2 and 3, Joseph Burton, Alfred Dodds, and James Knox. Of the other men in the party, five were gas watchmen and nine others were skilled at fighting fires. At 3.05 that afternoon, low rumbling sounds accompanied by a jarring of the earth that shook the town announced the explosion. Investigation showed the west slope was completely wrecked and hopelessly caved in. The wooden top of the air shaft was blown off. The fan itself was uninjured and the shaft was quickly repaired with brattis cloth. The force of the explosion was so hard that 12 foot timbers, each a foot in diameter, were blown out of the pit of the mouth of the mine. Some timbers were blown more than 500 feet away. Wow. Yeah. The roof of the east air shaft sloping to the fan house was blown off in a manner similar to that on the west side, but neither the fan nor the slope was materially damaged. As soon as the rescuers congregated about the west slope, they knew these facts. They rushed across the hill to the east slope, one and a half miles away, where their first efforts were expended in repairing the fan. According to the Mine Inspection Report of 1908, Inspector David M. Elias was on train number three going to Rock Springs at the time of the explosion and was handed a telegram announcing the explosion shortly after it occurred. He arrived at Hannah shortly after 4 p.m., hardly an hour after the first disaster. Every person of authority in the camp had been wiped out by the first explosion, and up to the time of the arrival of Inspector Elias, there seemed to be no leader apart from the sole surviving fire boss, Joseph Wood. According to a report in Mine and Minerals, when Elias arrived at the mouth of the East Slope, everyone looked to him as a leader of the rescuers. His task was made doubly difficult by the loss of all persons of authority who could have assisted his leadership and compelled the strict carrying out of his orders. Superintendent Briggs, the foreman of the three mines and five of the six fire bosses were dead, while the sixth had just been carried out raving from the effects of the gas encountered below. Inspector Elias evidently needed a man who would enforce his orders with a club if necessary. But the man he picked not only failed him, but lost his own life through disobedience of orders. After starting the repaired West Slope fan, the East Slope fan having been run continuously, Inspector Elias with the party of 10 men started down the East Slope 
probably about 5.30 p.m. A guard was left behind at the top of the slope with strict instructions from Inspector Elias to allow no one else to go below. The party could not have been gone long, however, before the guard yielded to the pressure of excited would-be rescuers and went below with them. After that, it seems that anyone and everyone passed at will up and down the slope into the mine. It is apparent that more than 50 men must have followed the inspector's party into the mine, streaming down the slope in groups of three or more without a leader, without organization, and without a plan of concerted action. In the ensuing confusion, each group seems to have taken such precautions as seemed best to it without knowing what others were doing. The second explosion occurred at 1025 that night. This explosion entombed all who were below and caved in the east slope. A house-to-house canvas by the company officials the next morning established the fact that 41 men were missing in addition to the 18 lost in the first explosion, making a total of 59 fatalities. The second explosion, even more horrific than the first, caught the entire rescue party. At this point, all attempts at rescue work were abandoned as now both the east and west slopes were both completely caved in. As was the case in the 1903 explosion, Fires burning within the mine created an extreme hazard and rescue work had to be halted many times over the next several weeks as attempts were made to re-enter the mine to recover bodies. The mine inspector report stated that the work of rescuing the remainder of the bodies will be very slow for volumes of deadly gases are issuing from the air shafts of the mine. The west and east slopes have been blocked, shutting off all air passages in an effort to smother the fire. Until the fire has been stopped, and the gases have been fanned from the shaft, it will be impossible to enter. The blacksmith's shop in Hannah was set up as a temporary morgue. There were at least 65 coffins waiting to be used as bodies were recovered. Grief-stricken wives, mothers, and families of the victims crowded about the morgue and gazed at the ghastly sight. The best men in the camp including all the officers of the several mines, with the exception of three gas watches, perished, owing to the fact that the fire had been raging in number 10 since the previous Saturday, there were no miners at work when the explosion occurred. Had the explosion come on a working day, the death list would have been 200, for there would have been no escape for any of the men. Joe Woods, a fire boss, of the number two mine was the only fire boss in the camp to escape. He had just been relieved from duty a few minutes before the explosion. It was one of those serendipitous moments there for him. Mm -hmm. Most of the victims were married men and left large families behind. Many of their wives and children were left without any means of financial support. Many of the men killed in the explosion belonged to various fraternal organizations that helped to organize the funeral arrangements for each of the lost lives. On Monday, March 30, 1908, Governor B.B. Brooks ordered State Mine Inspector Noah Young of the Northern District to proceed to Hannah and make a thorough investigation of the explosions and their cause and particularly of circumstances incidental to the second and greater catastrophe. An announcement also made that no further effort to open the mine would be made for several more days. 
As was the case in the 1903 explosion, it would take several months to attempt to recover all the bodies. On Saturday, August 22nd, 1908, 148 days after the explosion, the last body was pulled from the mine. That body was John Cookson, a driver, aged 22. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the Hanna Cemetery. According to the 1908 mine inspection report, since that day, no further work or rescue has been undertaken. From July 10th, when the first opening occurred, until August 22nd, 27 bodies were taken out, and it is believed there are 27 more bodies in the mine. It is possible they will never be recovered as the water is rising at the rate of four feet per day in the mine. So to break down the numbers of the two explosions, the first explosion, which consisted of the fire crew, 18 men were killed, 14 bodies remain in the mine, and four of those bodies were recovered. In the second explosion, which was the rescue crew, 41 men were killed, 27 bodies remain in the mine, 32 of those bodies were recovered. On March 6, 1909, the Cheyenne Daily Leader reported that state mine inspector Noah Young had reported the following information. Quote, that the system of the Union Pacific Coal Company and the operation of its number one mine in Hanna, in which the lives of hundreds of men had at various times been sacrificed, did not include precautions necessary for the protection of the miners employed, unquote. Young was sent to examine the mine as an expert and as a representative of the state of Wyoming. He was sent because 59 men, including the only other coal mine inspector employed by the state, had just met death in the colliery. And because it was a subject of general belief that the mine was dangerous and was not properly operated. The fearful toll of life paid for its production shrieked for investigation. In his official report made to the governor, Young said that the first explosion could have been avoided by proper care on the part of the officials of the Union Pacific Coal Company is evident in my opinion. It was undoubtedly due to the desire of the officials to open up this entry as speedily as possible. This entry, like number eight, was a new entry and no rooms had been opened in from it. The opening of this entry would permit the working of about 34 rooms. Just six days after the fire had broken out, an effort was made to extinguish the fire by forcing the stoppings backward toward the face of the entry. In my opinion, and I believe in this, every experienced miner in the state will concur that the only safe method to have adopted was to wall off number 10 entry with double stone stoppings and left it for 30 to 60 days, in which time the fire would have been completely extinguished. The report then states, that this fire and others which are mentioned in detail were walled off by wooden stoppings rather than stone in direct violation of the state law and the officials of the company are sharply criticized for permitting the walling off of fires with wooden stoppings or partitions, particularly after the disaster of 1903. The report gives but brief mention to the second explosion, stating that it was the direct result of the conditions produced by the first and that the loss of life was due to the violation of the orders of Mr. Elias, who forbade any other than his crew of 10 to enter the mine. 
The remainder of the report is devoted to the testimony of one of the miners as to the precautions taken to extinguish the fire, which caused the explosion, and a number of recommendations not directly concerned with the explosion. One of these is that miners should not be permitted to fire shots or blast out coal when the mine is filled with workmen on account of the danger of dust explosions from windy shots, and the use of flameless powder is urged. Of course, the Union Pacific Coal Company was not happy with Young's report, and because of this, he was not reinstated as a state inspector. The company was appalled that an inspector would suggest that it was a lack of safety on their part and not the carelessness of miners that caused the accident. They felt that the miners that had caused the initial blast were at fault, and because of this, it would be many years before they would fully pay out compensation to families of those who had perished. And we didn't actually, I didn't put this into our script initially because I kind of couldn't figure out where to fit it in, but we figured out this is a good spot. So the thing with these particular, this particular group of miners and was often the case with miners all over the country um, is they worked for the company. So their housing was paid for by the company, Mm -hmm. their food, their clothing, all their needs were met by the company. So they shopped in company stores. They lived in company housing. They didn't really have pay to go outside of the mining community that they lived in. Because they were paid in script, which was company script. And those scripts were kept on file at the company store. And when payday came around once a month, they would go to the company store, pay it off and start their tab all over again with that script. Mm -hmm. And so when these miners died, they left their families, their wives and their children with no means of, of income because they weren't going to be able to take that script anywhere outside of the mining community. Um, and in this case, Hannah, and, and go start life somewhere else because it wouldn't have worked anywhere other than in a Union Pacific coal company right. community. And they could raise the prices in the stores anytime they want it. And, and the miners, they... They were stuck. Yeah. I mean, it, when I first read that, and it wasn't just the coal mines. I mean, I read that about the gold mines in Cripple Creek and Victor's mm-hmm. that that's where I first learned about it. So it's. Yes. Yeah. It's so working for the, I don't know, listeners, you may have heard the song about the company store and that's what that song is referring to. He's giving his life, his entire life to the company, right. all his time, his life, his everything goes to the company and that's how it worked, which is where the whole idea behind a lot of unions and stuff began to form because these miners got together and said, okay, this isn't fair anymore. We're not able to go anywhere outside our community. And so unions started to form and that's a whole nother episode. We'll get into another time, but that was the whole point of trying to form these unions to be able to fight issues like this, because Mm -hmm. in this case, when the, the union Pacific coal company was told that it was technically their fault that this accident happened because they hadn't made sure that the proper safety protocols were being followed, Um, And instead they said, oh no, it was these miners who did this explosion incorrectly and then didn't put out their fire correctly. It's their fault that this all happened. Uh, They didn't want to have to pay out to these families Mm -hmm. what these families deserved after losing their husbands and brothers and sons. So um, we're going to just squeeze that in there right there. On July 23rd, 1909, the Casper Press reported that the machinery and tipple at mine number one of the Union Pacific Coal Company here are being removed in preparation of the complete abandonment of the mine. It has been the scene of more disasters than all other mines in the state combined. 
ex-state coal mine inspector Noah Young last year reported that the mine was a menace to the safety of those who entered it. He recommended that state authorities close the colliery. His recommendation was not acted upon and he was removed as inspector, but his report had the proper effect upon the coal company, even though the state authorities were found wanting. Everyone will rejoice in the final closing of this death trap. According to Bob Leathers, who we had mentioned in the previous episode, had, who had written a book about the mine and the miners, many of the miners who perished in both the 1903 explosions and the 1908 explosions were buried in unmarked graves. In his book, he states that the 1903 explosion killed 169 men. 20 of the 169 were buried in other towns. 38 of the 169 were buried in marked graves in the Hannah Cemetery, and 110 men were buried in unmarked graves in the Hannah Cemetery. Most of the unmarked graves were non-English speaking foreigners. The unmarked graves consisted of 81 from Finland, 11 African-Americans, 10 from Italy, three from Sweden, one from Belgium, and one from Germany, and one from Ireland, and two from the United Kingdom. The English-speaking miners, for the most part, seem to have been marked because they have permanent markers today. Unfortunately, the same thing would happen to the men who died on March 28, 1908. More dead miners being buried in unmarked graves in the Hannah Cemetery would continue. For decades, the unmarked graves were left unattended. It wasn't until Mary Ford, the longtime manager of the Hannah Hotel, whose father had been killed in the 1908 explosion, initiated a project in the 1940s to mark the graves with welded rebar crosses painted silver. Mary Ford and her friends were able to find and mark the graves because the graves are located in more or less straight rows. When closely examined, the rows and the graves can be detected even today. In 2000, the Hannah Cemetery Board voted to remove the rebar crosses and replace them with unknown minor markers. The new markers are flat stone markers that have a cross and shovel pickaxe tools used by miners, engraved at the top of the stone, and each stone says unknown miner underneath the engraving. These flat stones allow the cemetery's caretakers to more easily maintain the grave sites of these unknown miners. In chapter four of Bob Leather's book, The Hannah Miner at the Bottom of the Mine, are many facts regarding the cemetery of Hannah that we thought you listeners may find interesting. During the fall of 2013, a lengthy project to inventory the graves in the Hannah Cemetery was completed by Bob Leathers, Gary Beaver, and Joyce McCartney. The goal was to identify, record, list, and then map every individual buried in the Hannah Cemetery, including those buried in marked and unmarked graves. Hannah Town Records, Census Records, Hannah Basin Museum Records, Newspapers, State Mine Inspector Reports, Inquest Reports, Obituaries, Union Pacific Coal Company records and online sources were all reviewed. A detailed list of the people buried in the Hannah Cemetery and a list of the men buried in unmarked graves were the results of those efforts. That took a lot of work. Yes, it did. <laughs> the lists are available for viewing at the Hannah Basin Museum. The Laramie Republican on April 9th, 1908, described the Hannah Cemetery as a most desolate spot on the prairie, two miles from town, it is hard to appreciate the lonesome appearance of this isolated colony of the dead. Later that year, the Cheyenne leader described the Hannah Cemetery as a place where the torn and mangled miners are finally laid to rest. 
The Hanna Cemetery has always been a revered place for the people living in the Hanna Basin. Over the years, for a variety of reasons, families spread out across the country, but the dead stayed behind and many of them with the passing of time were forgotten. When the weather is warm and the markers visible, visitors come from all over the world in search of information about lost family and friends. Some find what they are looking for, others unfortunately do not. As of January 1st, 2018, the Hannah Cemetery held 1,195 identifiable individuals. Adelaide Smith in plot number 369, a longtime teacher in the Hannah Elementary School was 107 years old at the time of her death. And John Avery Lady in plot 368 was 100 years old at the time of his death. What a coincidence that the two oldest people buried in the Hannah Cemetery, who are not related, but they're buried next to each other. I thought that was a cute little tidbit. (laughs) 86 of the 329 mine men killed in the Hannah Mines are buried in marked graves in the Hannah Cemetery. 134 of the 329 men killed in the Hannah Mines are buried in unmarked graves. 28 men killed in the Hannah Number 1 Mine are buried at the bottom of the mine. And even though the men are not buried in that cemetery, they are listed there in hopes that they won't be forgotten. In addition, the earliest identifiable burial dates were in 1891 and 1892. James W. Case in Plot 106 is the only person known to have served in the Civil War. He served in the U.S. Army Cavalry from the state of Missouri in the 9th Regiment, Company 1. Also, many Hannah residents died from the flu epidemic of 1918. It is not possible to know how many died of the flu, but 30 individuals were buried in the Hannah Cemetery that year. And that, listeners, concludes our episodes of the tragic deaths of so many coal miners in Hannah, Wyoming. Coal mining is still a very necessary and vital part of today's economy. Fortunately, with the formation of mining unions, the work of these miners has been made safer throughout the years. While mining will never be completely safe, we hope that disasters like these never occur again in any coal mine or any type of mine in the United States. At some point in the future, we may include an episode on the unionization of the mines as many deaths occurred during the formations of these unions. We thank you once again for joining us today. You can find all the resources we used for research for this episode in today's show notes on our website, theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. We would also be extremely grateful if you would consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on our website. Thank you until we meet again.